All right, everyone. Welcome to Single-Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I, uh, I'm a podcaster. Check out my podcast with Katie Herzog, Blocked and Reported. I have a newsletter, jessesingle.substack.com. Um, today, we're going to talk about Russia-Ukraine stuff. I have invited Ilya Lazovsky, uh, who is a real-life Russian-American, or that's what he's told me for the many years I've known him. Ilya, unmute yourself. Also, also like me, a Jew. Uh, all right, Ilya, I'm trying to run through the full disclosures we need to do before we dive into this. We went to high school together. We're, we're friends. Um, we were married for 30 years, but then we broke up amicably, right? But we're still, like, pretty, you know, into hanging out. And yeah. <laughs> exactly. And one time when I was 28-ish... I had a crush on one of Ilya's friends, and she was not interested, so that cut me. Oh, deeper. yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> it's okay. All right. Uh, much more serious matter. So, I mean, what – you speak Russian. You what? How old were you when you came to our uh, hometown? I was seven when I moved to the U.S. from Mom. Okay. Yes. And we come from a town that has like a uh, – and an area that has a fair number of um, Russian Jewish immigrants, right? Yeah. It's a big community uh, near Boston. And yep. um, I've also, like, studied a lot of um, stuff about democratization in grad school. I've been a journalist for a bunch of years now covering... Oh, yeah. What, sorry. Give your, give your current uh, affiliation. I've been very unprofessional here. Uh, so I'm with... Uh, I'm a writer and senior editor at OCCRP. That's our great brand for the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. We are in international network of investigative journalists uh, working all over the world to expose organized crime and corruption. So that's kind of my day job. Obviously, the last few days, I've just been terminally online and just um, following this tragic situation. But I have covered Ukraine before. Um, I've been there a bunch of times. I have a lot of people there. And obviously, I care a lot about my original homeland, Russia, too. So this has been a pretty fucked up week. Yeah, fucking go for it. If ever there were a time to swear, it's this week. I'm, I'll be there. Are your, are your, as far as you know, are your people in Ukraine doing okay? Did they get out? Are they sticking around to fight? What's uh, the deal? They have, uh, they have left Kiev, but they are in Ukraine as far as I know. Some people are getting out, but we're not talking about their exact location. Right. There's a pretty – one of the scary uh, news notices uh, that came right before the invasion is that Russia was preparing kill lists of um, outspoken Ukrainians. And um, a lot of that, you know, people were really skeptical about that, and it's good to be skeptical. But a lot of the other intelligence has proven very correct that the U.S. was putting out, which is interesting because that <laughs> has not always been the case in the past. No, really? <laughs> Don't say that. Um, but I, I, mean, I can't imagine having to try to – I mean, I've, I've written a fair amount about, like, misinformation online. It, it just seems like anything involving Russia – all that stuff just gets ramped up 5,000%. How, how do you even start, as, as someone who reads and speaks Russian, how do you even start to like try to figure out what's true during a fast-moving situation like this? Yeah, so what I really don't like is when people start coming out with stuff like, well, kind of throwing up their hands and giving up and saying, well, there's so many fakes, you know, you can't tell what any of it is, you know, you can't tell what's true or not, so you might as well give up. I've seen some, you know, pretty smart people saying that, and I can see for an outsider how it's very confusing and hard to figure out. For me, it's just about finding the people who are reliable. You know, there are charlatans, there are shysters and uh, grifters of all stripes that um, gravitate to these kind of conflicts. 
but there are people who do great work. And that includes, you know, our Russian colleagues and Ukrainian colleagues and other great independent Russian and Ukrainian journalists and, you know, international journalists that are great covering the situation, too. Yeah. So um, you just have to know kind of who to trust. And it takes work and it takes, you know, people don't want to work and people are lazy and people just want to share the thing that reinforces their priors, which is very frustrating. Yeah. Well, the Snake Island thing was a good example. I was I was recording our my other podcast with with Herzog and I actually uh, she wanted to talk about it as as an example of something people spreading news that hadn't been confirmed and I was I told her off mic I was like no let's not use that as an example like Zelensky said it was true CNN confirmed it I even I had no idea of like what had actually been capital C confirmed which is not a good sign that's a, that's a good example of the fog of war but it's not actually to my mind a great example of disinfo I don't see any evidence that it was intentionally spread disinformation they Ukrainian uh, defense ministry I think was the first to say that they had died and it was because they had the Russian battleship had shelled the island and they lost contact with them so and then there was the Ukrainians themselves who are now coming out and saying actually they're alive they're in oh, gotcha. you know, taken prisoner so um, that's the, the kind of mistake that can happen in war but I mean it's definitely true there's a lot of propaganda out there. I would say I'm not really confident about the casualty numbers that the Ukrainians are putting out there. There, I think, up to nearly 6,000 Russian soldiers killed. They're saying, I'm a little skeptical, although the Russians are having serious losses. So the one thing I wanted to also say about like finding the true information is there is a community of people on Twitter and you know other places that are really experienced on using open source information to verify, geolocate. Okay, here's a picture of a burning tank. First of all, you know, people have the expertise to say, is this a Ukrainian tank or a Russian tank? And then they look at the street sign that's in the background or the funny shaped tree that's next to it or the building, right. you know, and they actually find where in Ukraine it is. And is it possible that that would be there? Um, that kind of thing. So there are people. Yeah, I would name This Bellingcat. is like the Bellingcat style. Oh, I was just going to say. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Bellingcat is just, you know, they, we've partnered with them. We work with them a lot. I know them. You can absolutely trust you know, nobody's going to have a 100% perfect record, but they do not make claims that they have not checked out themselves. So follow, if you're interested in this, follow Bellingcat, follow everyone who works there who's working on the conflict, and you will. Okay. Yeah, and everyone should also follow Ilya himself, at Ich bin Ilya, like German, I am Ilya, uh, and he'll obviously retweet good people. Uh, all right. So, I mean, I have a, a huge number of questions about everything. If folks want to jump in the queue with any question you have about Russia-Ukraine that Ilya might be able to answer, um, I guess I'll just start. So first of all, I want it to be the case that Ukraine is putting up this like crazy unexpected resistance and they're really extracting a military toll on Russia. You just said that there's already some statistics you're skeptical of. Are we at a point where we can like actually say for sure that this is not going as well as Putin would have liked it to go or, or is it early too early even for that? I think we can definitely say that. Um, I would be, as I said, skeptical about specific numbers, but it's pretty clear that the Russians are not having the lightning quick advances that um, they wanted to have. I mean, there are so many uh, pictures of just completely exploded Russian tank columns, Russian prisoners being taken prisoner, um, interviews with them. Um, just like the fact that they haven't captured Kiev or even made a serious attempt. Um, so, and here's one other episode that is actually kind of indicative of this. A bunch of Russian state news outlets accidentally published uh an essay, I guess, or an argument, um, I think it was yesterday or maybe earlier today, that basically was meant to herald their victory. It had been auto- <laughs> No, really? Is, 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 is today the 26th? It was set for the 26th. I think today's the 27th. Uh, 28th, yeah. 
have no freaking idea what day it is. Um, so it was an essay that basically says Putin has united the Russian world again. Ukrainians are really Russian and they're part of Russia again. And it sets this up, this whole, I mean, it's, they really, literally use the phrase, phrase, Putin has solved the Ukraine. Oh, my question. God. I mean, that is chilling to anyone who knows. And this just went out on Russian-speaking cha- news channels. Like this went out. This went out on official, you know, state media. This isn't even like some crazy, sketchy Telegram channel or oh Twitter. This is like you know official. And then it was quickly unpublished. Um, but you could see that they were expecting to have won by now. Yeah. And just we are. At- Do you? Um... My view of Putin as someone who knows nothing about any of this and just I capture whatever trickles down onto like CNN or NPR is that like he is a vicious motherfucker, but he's not crazy and he doesn't have any of this sort of um, erraticism of like a Trump type. A, other than like occasionally poisoning dissident journalists and activists, uh, but he can do that with impunity. So in a sense, it's rational, I guess. A, is that the right view of him? B, do you agree that something has changed and he's acting differently? Or do you think people are overstating the idea that his, there's been a shift in his personality or behavior? It's hard to say how much of a shift. I mean, he definitely seems to be a little bit off his rocker now. And you see senior um, you know, diplomats who have met with him, who know him quite well, saying this, even Russian ones who say, you know, I don't know what the hell he's reading, man. I don't know what substacks he's reading. But um, he's, you know, people are saying he, he looks, he's, he's talking crazy talk in a way that would not have been imaginable a few years ago. Um, and there's no way in which this whole invasion can be argued like to be a rational decision at any point. I mean, he's only losing. We can talk about that more later. But he's in a, he's probably in bigger threat, under bigger threat right now than he's ever been since coming to power. Politically, you mean? Um, the one caveat I would add is like how rational was he before? And I think one thing to keep in mind is maybe this time he bit off more than he can chew in terms of the victims. You know, this is a very sort of uh, keeping in mind all the caveats we've mentioned. You know, this is an autocratic country attacking a a democracy um, with victims that the whole world can sort of identify with. And so this time there's a lot of more sympathy for Ukraine than maybe Putin expected. But he's been doing this kind of thing, you know, Putin single-handedly almost propped up Assad's regime in Syria in 2015. You know, that is an absolutely genocidal, crazy regime. Putin propped it up. He didn't become an international pariah then, although arguably that's just as evil, you know, as this. Oh, I mean, that was like the indiscriminate shelling of civilian populations in a way that at least hasn't happened yet in Ukraine, right? Uh, um, uh, just today, they were shelling uh, the second largest city of Kharkiv. Okay, so that has started. Shelling. So it's started, yeah. and that is the fear that out of frustration with the lack of progress they've been making so far, they're going to start to go full-on Grozny. And that was the second uh, example I wanted to mention. Putin's rule started with the Second Chechen War, where, you know, Chechnya, breakaway republic in the south of Russia. Putin yeah. came in, and the way he dealt with this... Um, you know, problem of urban warfare, and it was a much weaker Russian military back then, is he was like, we're not going to have urban warfare because we're just going to level these cities. Well, I think that, sorry, yeah, I didn't pose the question well, but, and this is a horrible thing to say, but I think a true thing, I don't think Putin, I don't think it probably cost him that much domestically to brutalize Syrians or Chechens, right? Or is that an overstatement? You know, there's definitely, people have been pointing out some of the racism, yeah. racist assumptions, you know, how everyone is so eager to welcome Ukrainian refugees into Europe and thank God. But, you know, Putin's Syrian victims were not afforded that level of sympathy. Certainly Putin's Chechen victims 
domestically, forget it. But inter even internationally, you know, there's some condemnation, but it's not to the extent that Russia is super, super isolated now and under widespread sanction of a kind that was unimaginable. I mean, their central bank is sanctioned. Yeah. Putin is personally sanctioned. It's really rude to sanction the leader of a country. So that is rare to happen. Can cancel culture um, strikes again. Exactly. Putin is canceled. Putin is canceled because of Ukraine. But Putin has been doing this shit. I mean, I w there's so much to it. You know, the imprisonment of opposition leader Navalny, the poisoning, uh, assassinations. Uh, the, even like this was kind of treated as a conspiracy theory. But um, the way he justified the Chechen war is with apartment buildings exploding in Moscow. In, sorry, not in Moscow, in some smaller cities uh, around the, the turn of the century. That was like this, a pretext. And you know, supposed to be terrorists, but like there are credible people who argue that was a false flag that yeah. the Russian security services blew up those buildings. And it sounds absolutely crazy, right? I mean, this is conspiracy level stuff, but I mean, especially given the false flags that have been happening now in Ukraine, it seems much more plausible. So that's just to say that, you know, he's been cruel and ruthless for his whole rule. And yeah. now, very belatedly, he might. Uh, let's take a question from Pango2. What's up? Pongo2, I'm so sorry. Yeah, no worries. Um, sorry, could you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, okay, great. Uh, yeah, so um, I did kind of want to ask because uh, I don't know, like, what degree of ex expertise, like, Ilya has about what's going on on the ground, but, like, in terms of what I'm seeing on social media right now, with uh, it seems like in the last couple of days we're seeing more, like, uh, pro-Putin kind of trolling whenever anything Ukrainian-related comes up, and I keep seeing this talking point that, it's you'll, you'll see people keep saying um, basically like, oh, yeah, these Ukrainians think they're doing so great, but they've actually just been fighting our uh, our cannon fodder conscript troops or whatever. And this is a standard Russian doctrine and we'll be sending in like the good troops soon and then they'll all be crushed. I feel like I keep seeing that again and again. And I'm almost starting to wonder, is that actually like the Kremlin propaganda line they're putting out? But we're just like we're using we're using our conscripts as cannon fodder. This is all according to plan. Or That's interesting. That I have like a post book yeah, that's interesting. I haven't actually seen that. It is, it, you know, from the interviews I've seen uh, with uh, Russian prisoners that have been taken so far, they do not strike me as elite crack troops. Um, some of them, they're very confused. A lot of them are claiming they didn't even know there was supposed to be a war. They said it was training exercises. They didn't know where they were going. I mean, you have to sort of treat it a little skeptically because obviously it's in their interest to say we never intended to hurt anybody. But just by sort of the vibe is that these are not super and, and they're very willing to sort of talk and to explain themselves to their captors uh the they don't strike me as elite troops and it's certainly i think you know to what extent it's intentional disinformation or, or a kremlin propaganda line i don't know but i russia does have elite units and i'm not quite sure where they are or what they're doing or why they've been missing in action so far you know there was an operation on the very first day to try to capture an airport near kiev and uh, they launched all these helicopters. I mean, there's footage, just incredible footage of dozens of helicopters flying across the city. And there was a desperate battle there. And the Ukrainians actually held their ground and uh, retook it. And I think they've been fighting over it basically since then. But, you know, if anything, you send if you're trying to do this, you send your elite units to do a mission like that. And um, right. maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. But they've been defeated. So it's, it's something some of the experts are saying is they're kind of puzzled because it seems that the Russians are not throwing everything they have at this. And it's not exactly clear why. And it might be they're reluctant to brutally massacre people like they could. Um, I, I wanted to ask about that because I'm, I'm worried this is just armchair psychologizing on my part. And um, 
you know, I visited you in Sarajevo. We know that people who are closely linguistically and culturally tied can massacre one another. But if I'm trying to get in the head of a 22-year-old Russian being told to go invade Ukraine on for reasons that I think everyone knows are, are very flimsy pretense, it just seems like that could affect the effectiveness uh, and, the, and the morale of it. I mean, do you have any sense of like what's going through that? I mean, maybe not, but like what, what, what do you think is going through the head of the average Russian soldier? They, uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is a very apt question because, you know, a lot of the sort of rhetoric from Putin is that, you know, Ukraine has been and his state media, you know, it's, it's a whole complex uh, of propaganda that, um, you know, Ukraine has been taken over by Nazis, uh, anti-Russians, Ukrainian nationalists, and they are the ones at fault. But, you know, the ordinary Ukrainian is our brother and we're going in there to liberate him from these Nazis. Um, so it's, you know, it's hard to send in young soldiers who have been fed this diet, even who, if they buy this entire diet, which there's no reason they wouldn't, honestly, because it's everywhere. Um, you send them in, you know, it's kind of hard then to ask them to shoot at ordinary people who are, you know, going to be throwing Molotov cocktails at them or peacefully resisting. So it, you know, so it's, um, it's hard to imagine because the, you know, in the Balkan wars, there was also this religious and ethnic yes, there were legitimate yeah. you know, Bosnians are Muslims. Um, which, you know, the whole ancient hatreds trope is a trope and it's not really, you know, they live peacefully together for a very long time in socialist Yugoslavia. But, you know, that element is missing in this case. Um, so it's that might be part of the answer is why they're not sort of moving forward as viciously as they were able to do in, for example. Gotcha. Um, well, thank you, Pongo. Uh, Yusarian, what's up? Hey, guys. Uh, so I'm just going to reveal my American provincialism here by asking a very broad question. Um, if, uh, Ilya, if, if... <laughs> exactly, what is this Ukraine that I hear so much about? Um, no, but it's, it's almost that, that broadly stupid, but if you have any insights or thoughts or a brief explainer to use Vox language, um, as to what the role of Belarus is, both as proxy, how it be, is it, it appears to be a proxy of Russia and what its, its role is. And I, as I understand it, some attacks have been launched from Belarus into Ukraine as well. Yes. So the Belarus angle is interesting because it's, got, it's gotten much less attention, but basically de facto Russia has occupied Belarus with hardly anyone even bothering to complain about it. They've launched, uh, they've staged a lot of their troops, in Belarus prior to the attack. They've been there for weeks, and Belarus is the closest point to Kiev. Um, so that is a very important, you know, staging area for them, and that is where the assault on Kiev has come from. So when you saw those pictures of, like, the tanks driving through Chernobyl, maybe you heard that, um, that they were in Chernobyl. It was not some kind of, you know, post-apocalyptic, they're going to blow up the nuclear thing. It's just because that's on the way to Kiev from Belarus. So... Um, yeah, Lukashenko is a horrific dictator, if anything, crueler than Putin, who violently suppressed protests uh, after a fake election. So in retrospect, the stakes of those protests are even higher, because imagine if Belarus had a democratic government or even a semi-democratic government um, now, things would look very different. But essentially, for years, they've been talking about sort of joining Russia and Belarus in a kind of, they're calling it like a uni, un, unified state. I guess that's the best translation, which it's kind of like, what does that mean? Because they're not like going to absorb Belarus into Russia, um, but they're talking about creating kind of like one quote unquote government. And in this thing I mentioned earlier about 
that article that like hooray we won that was accidentally published that was that they threw out that idea as kind of like okay now that we've conquered ukraine we're going to absorb ukraine and belarus into this unitary state with russia so that's almost like going back to the soviet model a little bit not with the communism but in terms of like how these countries are supposed to be together so belarus is a yeah proxy is a guy Be- belarus is sort of i remember meeting someone in um latvia who had traveled there it's like it's this real old school holdover like if you want to go to a country that's like basically not like the basically like a soviet style dictatorship that's sort of the last one left right Exactly. Yeah, they've just Lukashenko has survived. I mean, he's uh, you know one of the oldest remaining kind of post-Soviet leaders. He took power right after the fall of the Soviet Union. He's been in power ever since, and he's absolutely brutal. I mean, I met a lot of Belarusian journalists in actually last time I was in Ukraine. We were at a journalism conference, and you know the stories I heard are just appalling: torture in prison, in police stations, and prisons. I mean, it was absolutely brutal. They how they put down the popular protests, um, and Putin has been propping up Lukashenko for forever you know with uh with uh subsidies and cheap oil and all this stuff so you can add that to the column of shit that putin has done that sucks because belarus you know should be free and it's in the center of europe almost and it should not be under this absolute yeah. more i didn't i didn't mean to drop you you saw and that was uh an accident but i think Ilya uh, got your question colin what's up hi jesse hi Ilya. um i just have a quick question uh you you may not have a, a total sense of this um, not being on the ground, but you probably have been paying closer attention than I have. But I've, I've seen a lot made of um, citizens being called to um, make their way kind of through a war-torn country down to Kiev to arm themselves and there being... Um, sort of mass efforts to make uh, Molotov cocktails um, in order for like a, a, a citizen resistance. Do, it, how, how much involvement has citizen fighting really had in this? It, or, or is that sort of more a, um, I don't want to say propaganda, but sort of a, a nationalist uh, appeal? Uh, the preparations are definitely happening. People making Molotov cocktails, people setting up roadblocks all around Kiev, people being armed. Um, I don't, I haven't seen much in the way of actual, you know, proof of civilians actually taking part in fighting yet. I'm not sure we would see that um, necessarily so far. Maybe it hasn't really happened yet, but they're absolutely ready. Um, and they've even announced recently that they're releasing some prisoners from prison and saying they can get, you know, their sentences commuted if they volunteer to fight in some of the hard areas, which is a you know, that's the kind of shit that you'd see in a World War II movie, you know, and it's absolutely crazy that it's happening now. Um, yeah. There also, I th- there were some reports that they're not letting uh, able-bodied, you know, men of military age leave the country and that families were actually being separated on the border with Poland and um, the men were, you know, told to turn around. I feel like that would be, I'm not exactly sure what to think of that because I feel like that might have been more widely reported if it was happening on a big scale. So I'm not really sure. I just don't want to claim to know something that I'm not sure. For what it's worth, CNN was reporting that as though it were just like a true thing. But yeah, I I guess that doesn't... I'm not sure. I mean, we've had, you know, five, you know, it's like, I think over half a million refugees have entered Europe and it's been horrific conditions in Western Ukraine there. And I feel like if it was literally only women and children making it across, we would know that. But maybe I just didn't see that. So it could be true. I honestly don't know. So the... Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. 
those 18 to 60 year old men, right? Of, of yeah, able body. That, were being I, I remember seeing that. Yeah. I'm just not sure. Um, You're not, not sure, how, sure how valid, okay. how prevalent that is. But um, yeah, so I think, you know, this is what makes me afraid for the next stage, because if the Russians really are still intending to try to topple the government and occupy Kiev, I mean, how do you occupy a city of, what is it, 3 million people, I think, where, you know, half the population is ready to rain fire down on you? Um, and it's absolutely true. You know, you have Ukrainian volunteers heading to Ukraine from across the world who want to fight. And you have even foreigners doing that. Um because Ukraine, they've created a special unit of basically um, foreigners who want to join the fight. And there's like, you know, kind of a lot of these former military guys or like private security company guys who kind of get jazzed up on this kind of thing. And that reminded me of something else I want to ask you about. Um, the, the, obviously, the idea that uh, Ukraine is run by neo-Nazis is stupid. There is this uh, tradition of sort of far-right Ukrainian militias and, and like, hyper-nationalist groups, right? Could you just, like, put that in the right context for us and tell us what, what we should think about sure. that? So there's absolutely far-right nationalism and even, you know, neo-fascism in Ukraine. It is absolutely true. You can imagine that in any country that's under attack by an enemy, anyone who takes up arms and fights is going to gain a certain level of legitimacy. Um, you know, if Canada invaded the United States tomorrow and if some group of Proud Boys heroically defended their little town that would raise their status, right? Even though, you know, we find their views uh, hateful. Um, so during the 2014 Euromaidan revolution, a lot of uh, right-wingers um, and fascists, op- let's be frank, you know, did um, fight against that corrupt regime there and took part in the revolution that brought it down. So, and then the, this Azov battalion, which is sort of the archetypical Ukrainian, like, fascist grouping, uh, it was sort of a paramilitary group. They have been absorbed into the National Guard, I think it is, and they do still exist, and they are out there fighting today. So yes, they exist, but to put it in context, um, Ukraine has free elections, and no far-right party has ever won more than two percent that I'm aware of. And then you know that's not even enough to get a single representative into parliament. Right. So, so like by that parties. by that logic, Germany is closer to being Nazi. Yeah, than... I mean every cut every country has far-right groups, and so do we, and so does yeah Germany exactly. There's big stories about fascist infiltration into the German police, for example. Um, but that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't justify a foreign invasion. And so when these things are trotted out, it's just completely ridiculous. And let's not forget that Ukraine is, to my knowledge, the only country outside of Israel that has ever had a Jewish president, and that's Zelensky. Yep. So um, all this Nazi stuff is completely bogus. And you find that invoked by the, you know, by the left a lot of the time when, they, uh, when those people who want to... Um, really go after the U.S. or go after NATO, they find themselves defending this Russian imperialism I, on the on the justification of they're going in there to clean out the Nazis. And it's just it's just a it's just a complete. I, I wanted to ask you, well, let me save this for my last question. Let's get through a little more of the queue. But some of the um, lefty rhetoric on this and on the USSR more broadly, I want to ask you about. But first, Mickey. Hey, guys, can you hear me? Mm hmm. Great. Yeah. Uh, Ilya, I've been following all your reporting on Twitter. It's it's really interesting. Um, I just wanted to ask about. Yeah, man, it's been it's been great. Um, uh, I wanted to ask about the nuclear threat and like sort of just more broadly speaking, like uh, just been talking with a bunch of people about it and um, including some Russians that I know and just trying to figure out what, you know, sort of what Putin's 
sort of his persona like might tell us about things and also maybe what the I don't know if you have much information about like what the Russians sort of the procedure of like how, you know, nuclear arms can be. You're asking, are we going to, are we going to all die? Is what you're asking. Are we, Essentially, are we all going to die? Like sort of, and it's, it's unfortunately, it's a little bit of a self-centered two-parter. It's because I actually live pretty close to Washington, but it's like a first part. Is it like a, is it a Ukrainians are all going to die or like a, uh, you know, a likelihood of this descending into world war three. And basically it's just, you know, to, to sum up, my impression has always been like essentially Putin and his, you know, and the oligarchs are essentially, criminals like that's you know they run the country sort of seemingly as their own piggy bank and stuff obviously i don't think he has an ideological death wish but it also seems like he very much is tied up into the notion of you know the russian empire and stuff like that and it's like to what extent does his personality leave open the possibility of like him being backed into the corner so much like egotistically or sort of power you know his power threatened to, to, to have the nuclear thing be a threat. Uh, so on the technical aspects of what, um, you know, kind of preparations are being made, I'm not entirely sure. It's sort of equivalent to raising the DEFCON level on the U.S. side. That's what his statement meant when he said that um, yesterday. So it, it was crazy because the just of, what he said is, you know, he, he cited the Western sanctions, which are extremely uh, tough now, including, you know, closing airspace to Russian planes. Um, and he cited, you know, something like unfriendly comments by Western leaders. I mean, if that is a reason to put trigger, he's triggered. Alert, that's, he's extremely triggered. And that, you know, I had, I have to say, I had a moment, I'm, I'm in London right now. And I was thinking this is maybe, you know, if there's a nuclear war, this is not the best place to be. Um, and so, you know, I think the risk of nuclear war is pretty low. This is one of those long tail things, but is the chance lower, is the chance lo- a lot lower than 1%? I don't know if I'd be confident. And if you think about that, that's kind of terrifying, right? Yeah, that's absolutely terrifying. Um, So, yeah, this is kind of the stage we're in. You know, he has been robbed of his fast success. He has faced, I think, much more determined and resolute, first of all, Ukrainian resistance and all of our hats off to them. I think we can agree. And but also resolve on the part of the European Union, the um, United States and NATO. Um, So he's kind of backed into a corner now and this is when he becomes extremely dangerous and when you are facing a threat to perhaps your survival and you mentioned oligarchy you know that's a whole other topic but in the, in russia you know you you're, you're a person like putin if you leave the presidency you have a pretty good chance of being um killed right. and there are there's reporting that he was extremely shocked by the death of Gaddafi in libya because um you know, he was super against that intervention. And then Gaddafi, when he was captured, he was basically um, sodomized and killed and murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, and Putin, you know, I don't, I don't know how reliable this is, but I mean, I've people I trust have said this, that Putin is said to be sort of obsessed with the fate of Gaddafi and perhaps in fear of a similar fate for himself. So if it's a question between that and, you know, risking it all on a nuclear attack or something, I mean, who knows? Who knows what he's thinking? He's totally crazy, man. He's have you seen these tables that he's sitting at? Yeah, it's um, completely insane. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not clear if he's vaccinated, and there might be – there are some rumors that he's having health problems, and maybe he's immunocompromised, and maybe he can't have a vaccine, which is why he's sitting, you know, you know, 40 feet away from his advisors mm-hmm. when he meets with them these days. And he's been like that the whole pandemic, and I think it's kind of getting to his – I mean, I, I don't like to – psychoanalyze world leaders. I just think it's not a helpful sort of framing of these things, but you can sort of tell that he's getting a little batty. 
and that's yeah. not a good. He's got his hand on the nuclear button, so it's. Um, I have to say, it's it's very. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. You don't have like a hard out in the next twenty minutes, do you? You stick around? No, I'm good. I just might drop out for a second if I get a phone call, but I'll. Um, I'm I'm cool too. If it's Putin, just put him on like a three way thing. No, I want to put Putin on a three way. Sounds, <laughs> sounds pretty whack, man. That doesn't sound right. Phrasing, Gabby, what's up? Hey guys, great show. Um, quick question. I hope you don't think it's too, too dumb, but that would be interesting too. In the U.S., I hear there's one Tucker Carlson who's saying things like, "Putin never called me a racist. Putin never reported me to HR. He knows how many genders there are." Can you tell me what that would sound like to Ukrainians or Russians? I know they have other things to worry about, but Tucker is a major broadcaster, has the ear of uh, politicians in America, I'm told. And so I wonder what that would sound like over there in the, in the war war, never mind the culture war. And, and secondly, I wonder why you think, if it matters, I think it does, why Tucker does it. Is he just a bad man? I mean, that may be, but other than being a bad man and wanting ratings, can you speculate on why he does it and how it sounds abroad? Uh, sure. So, um, first of all, this is why I sort of feel a little guilty when I go after the DSA folks and the leftists on their views because they their views suck when um, you know they're kind of supporting Putin, but they're also not anywhere near power. They don't have the reach of a Tucker Carlson. So I think it's important to be clear that the right wing and the Trumpist wing of the Republican Party has also been extremely terrible on this. And Tucker's comments are a perfect example. Um, the culture war is, I mean, people won't even understand what he's talking about in, um, in the region. They don't give a shit what he's talking about. Someone made a joke on Twitter that if we could only hack Putin's presidential bio and add some pronouns in there, then maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe, the, maybe the right wing would go after Katie him. Katie said they should check his old tweets and get him canceled. <laughs> there you go. Um, unfortunately, he doesn't even use a computer, so uh, that's uh, not going to be possible. But, yeah, T- Tucker, I mean, I think he's an opportunist, and he just sees a way of going after Biden on it, and I think that's his motivation. I don't think he's ever thought deeply about this, and I don't think he cares. Um, the thing that really made me mad about what he said is that, and this is kind of, the right-wing sort of approach on this is like, well, why should we care about Ukraine? Biden is dragging us into another war or whatever. I mean, the reason we should care about Ukraine is because Ukraine is like the front line in the global battle for democracy. And like, that sounds like big words, but I mean, I really think it's true. And I have sort of a personal emotional stake in this. So maybe I'm exaggerating that to some extent, but um, I was working for a human rights organization in 2014 when the Euromaidan revolution happened. And that was an absolutely popular movement against corrupt government and dictatorship. And, you know, I was like working for an organization that was sending emergency money to like evacuate activists who had been tortured and all sorts of horrible shit. So I know what the Ukrainians went through um, in the Euromaidan. And it was a genuine popular uprising against corruption and for democracy. And they've had free elections since then. It's still a deeply corrupt state, Ukraine, and our reporting shows that. Um, But there have been serious and real reforms, and they're really trying to sort of bring about rule of law and um, democracy and, like, join Europe. And they see their destiny as in Europe. And this is what Putin, you know, this is what offends him so much that a part of what he sees as the Russian world is trying to break away from his kind of style of rule and go towards Europe and join, you know, eventually the European Union and things like that. And so to, to have someone like Tucker Carlson belittle those aspirations 
and to say we shouldn't yeah. care is just too corrupt to fight. I mean, it's it, it really it chokes me with rage because when I think of those Ukrainians who died, you know, in the Euromaidan and who have, fight, have been fighting for years for their country and my colleagues and journalists who, you know, have been working since then to make Ukraine a European country, um, it's it's absolutely well, infuriating. What do we know about how how the average Russian, to the extent we have good polling, how do they view the USSR and the idea of like sort of Russian national historical greatness? Uh, you will find factions that have a lot of Soviet nostalgia. And if you go to any like YouTube video that has like an old classic Soviet movie or a Soviet song or something, you'll find a shitload of comments that are like, those beautiful years, why are they gone? You know, and it's kind of like moving sometimes to see Russians sort of remembering like, but it's also sort of this, it's this haze of nostalgia that I think is not entirely rational. So there's definitely that kind of crowd. Um, there's people who remember the USSR as powerful and respected in the world. And this is of course the narrative Putin prefers and they lament that that has left. But I think in most, you know, most Russian, they understand that communism was not effective, that the economy was not what it could have been, that there were no freedoms and they would not, they don't want to go back to communism. There is a communist party. You know, there are people, there's a faction like that, but I wouldn't say that's a majority opinion. I think it's more about, um, back then, you know, Russia was a superpower and now it's not. How, so I think it, yeah. The average Russian, whereas the average Ukrainian probably has, um, I get the relationship is complicated. Their neighbors, Ukraine has plenty of reasons to distrust Russia. And there was like a literal forced starvation genocide. Does the average Russian, this is a dumb question, have, have any reason to feel negatively toward Ukrainians unless they've really bought into a lot of like the neo-Nazi propaganda or whatever? Ukraine has not done anything to Russia. So the propaganda is that, you know, this war in eastern Ukraine that's been going on since Euromaidan, that they've been fed this constant stream of misinformation about how the Ukrainians are massacring the Russian-speaking population, about how this is all. I mean, the, the average Russian, this is kind of what they'll say. And even Russians who are now speaking up against this war, they'll say, you know, well, I supported, you know, protecting our brethren in eastern Ukraine, but this has gone too far. But even those initial claims like our, you know, like that is also largely propaganda i mean atrocities have happened on both sides it's true you know russian populations have suffered but that war was also of putin's making yeah and the rump states you know luhansk and donetsk that are in the east there they're ruled by actual criminals and it's a complete travesty and the, if anything the ukrainians have suffered more so um so no it's 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 it, it, it's interesting um and the, of course, this goes back a long ways. Uh, this line of a much strong, not only a stronger state, but an order of magnitude stronger state claiming it can launch defensive wars because this other country is not treating the Russian speaking population well. It's like it's kind of ingenious in a way. And this is something Putin has, you know, rhetoric he's busted out before on the Baltic countries, yeah. on Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. They have Russian minorities who sometimes claim, you know, sometimes legitimately have some legitimate grievances. And this is why those countries were desperate to join NATO, because that, you know, that is what guarantees that what's happening to Ukraine now cannot happen to them. Right. And so this is what is missed often on this whole narrative of NATO expansionism. You know, it's a legitimate question on the surface of it. Soviet Union is gone. Why does it NATO still need to exist? Why is it expanding? Well, the Soviet Union is gone, but Russia is not gone. Yeah. So these countries were clamoring, cl absolutely desperate for NATO membership and not just them. Um, and because Eastern Europe remembers being under the boot heel 
of the Soviet Union, and they don't want to go back. And now you have just more evidence of that right now. You have Finland and um, Sweden who have um, who are not in NATO. They have, you know, there's a petition that's getting like tens of thousands of signatures now. And, you know, those countries have like three people in them. So that says a lot. Um, they are like now talking seriously about maybe moving towards NATO membership. And who knows if that'll happen. But this is why. It's, it's a response. What would be, I'm going to ask you to really speculate wildly here, but everything that has happened so far uh, in, uh, geopolitically has hurt Russia and, and it could cause a depression in Russia. Is there a version of this where Russia comes out having won all this? What would have to happen for that to be the case? I can't imagine it. I mean, I really? cannot. Simple as that. Know, it, right at this point. I mean, if they had, this is already impossible because it hasn't, but if they had even won that initial lightning strike and decapitated Kiev and killed Zelensky and put in some puppet, they would have an occupation on their hands. And the Ukrainians, I'm telling you, are not going to take this. And um, they will it will they will have to crush Ukraine in order to rule it. And that is expensive. And it is I mean, it's just I, I just can't even construct in my mind what that scenario would look like. And the Russian ruble has plummeted today. The stock market didn't even open today um, and because these sanctions are so powerful. And so what I think, um, I mean, for Russia, it's, it's such a shame because Russia has everything it could need to be an advanced economy. You know, they've got highly educated population. They have natural resources up to here. They've got, you know, the tourism potential is enormous. I mean, everything you could hope you could ask for, for a country to be modern, successful, proud of its culture and its history. It's like Iran, you know, a beautiful yeah. ancient culture with so much. To and it feels squandered in this heartbreaking way. Exactly. And so, yeah. you know, Russia really has, they're, they're shooting themselves in the foot and it's Putin, you know, who's doing it. And I think that since we asked me to speculate, I'll make another one. Um, I think the chances now of a palace coup are higher than they've ever been, because I think there are people around Putin, various, you know, security officials and military officials and ministers who are more rational than he is and who did not want this and who thought he was bluffing, too, um, and who are seeing now the damage that every day is mounting on Russia. Well, I, I was going to say, no, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just, you know, the analogy that leaps to mind is the um, German officers who tried to kill Hitler because they saw that he was dragging Germany into ruin. And those guys were not, you know, liberals. Yeah. They were not Democrats. They were, um, I don't think they were Nazi party members, but they were very, very nationalist conservatives. And so there's no, there's no one currently who can take the place of Putin who would be a nice man. Um, but, but it could be someone who would step back from this. So I don't, I'm not going to predict this going to happen, but every little ounce of additional pressure and sanction um, combined with military defeat in Ukraine, combined with Russian families every day hearing from their um, children who are captured or who have died. I think the pressure is mounting, and I don't want to speculate, but it is not. I was going to say, I mean, in addition to, like, you know, some military or foreign policy old time or just seeing this as strategically idiotic, uh, tell me if, I, if, if you think this is correct, but are, there is, like, this pretty powerful oligarch class there that has a vested interest in just Russia continuing to be a sort of stagnant, shitty basket case country where they continue to reap the benefits of the corruption uh, without drawing too much attention to the negative stuff Putin does. This seems to have toppled that whole system for them overnight, right? Yeah, I think that picture, you're not wrong, but I just wanted a slight adjustment to that characterization is that what you're describing was like a little more true in the 
90s okay. and maybe early 2000s because Putin has really brought the oligarchs to heel since then. And so, you know, in, in Ukraine is more kind of that situation where the oligarchs are still extremely powerful and corrupt and sort of driving policy and thwarting reform. In Russia, they are sort of, Putin has gotten closer and closer to the, they call the Siliviki, that's the security officials. And the oligarchs are basically those who dared to oppose Putin have been, have left the country um, or been killed <laughs> or imprisoned. And those that remain and are wealthy and benefit, yes, from corruption, but they are sort of, um, he's made them dependent on him. And so it's hard to kind of make that break between them. This is what my organization spend so much time on reporting is this oligarch class in Russia and Ukraine and so many other countries and big accent here, big emphasis on the enabling of this class of people that happens in the West. Because, um, uh, you know, once you steal $5 billion through some corrupt scheme in Russia, you don't want to keep that money in Russia where it can be taken back from you. You want to put it in London real estate or Miami or New York. And that requires someone on the other end. And that requires this entire industry of law firms and accountants and lawyers. And this is what, you know, most of my organization, this is what we do um, to, this is our main work is to expose this kind of system. You know, we did a report earlier this year about the first family in Azerbaijan, a dictatorship no less vile, you know, than the Russian one. They own, I can't remember the number now off the top of my head, but it's like $6 billion, I think, dollars of property here oh in London. Oh, my God. And you can, we did a little, we did a feature on our site where you can take a walking tour through London and you like go <laughs> through the map and it shows you, you know, building after building of like stuff owned by the first family of Azerbaijan, including, you know, one entire office building owned by an offshore company that was owned, that belonged to the 11 year old son of the president. The 11 year old so son owns like an office building? Uh, at least he did at the time. That That's like know, a Macaulay Culkin yeah. movie or something. Yeah, man. It's um. We, we had a recent story called Boss Babies about <laughs> companies that shell companies that are registered to infants. In some cases, the company is um older than the baby that it's registered to. Oh my so god. So this is like this is where like you know people talk about Western complicity and forget NATO. You know this is where the West is complicit is in enabling these people to funnel wealth out of these countries and put it into comfortable comfortable shit in the west and it is absolutely galling and you know the 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 daughter of uh, lavrov putin's foreign minister oh sorry sorry wrong guy piskov putin's uh, pr guy putin's spokesperson his daughter was an intern for the european parliament i mean these people go to western school these people love to rail about the decadent west but their children they own mansions in france and spain their children go to western schools and post Instagram photos of themselves partying all over the world. And, you know, this is where we need to crack down if we're going to not enable this class. Um, before I get to Meg, what's the what's the website people can go to read this reporting? OCCRP.org. That's Organized, O-C-C-R-P. Crime, O-C-C-R-P. Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. And if you follow me on Twitter, I you know tweet out our stuff all the time. So, so please do follow us and help us. And if you want to pitch in and donate, um, you know, we are we are doing this work and it is it's important. It's a, it's, a, it's a lot of work. I want to know how many skyscrapers Azerbaijani babies own. That's interesting to me. Well, there is only one place on the internet where you will find that and that is OC, <laughs> that is OCCRP. Meg, what's up? Hey. Um so how how well armed is the average Ukrainian citizen not in the military and or how easy would it be to arm them at this point? Uh, I have no info about like pre-war 
armament rates, but they have been literally handing out rifles to anyone who wants one. Okay. Uh, and so in so it's like exactly. Well, and I I don't want to be flippant or or make it a, about us, but and and I hope to God never to have to go through what they're going through. But I just think that you know if someone starts invading in America, every other person is armed. So and I just I didn't know how that would work in another country, especially. You know, I, I know people tend to judge our gun ownership, and I don't know if maybe Ukrainian what their stance was on that. But yeah, I don't know about. Um, I, I mean, typically, I would imagine. You know, honestly, I don't want to speculate. Before this war, I don't know what it was, but right now, they are giving them to anyone who wants one. So this is what the Russians are going to have to deal with. And the, the, this is the again the scary thing is the only way to deal with that is to flatten everything. With- yeah. It's unfortunate. Well, I, I thank you for your information. You've been really um, helpful. And Thanks. That's, Thanks. That's all I had to add. Okay. Bye-bye. Hello? There. Um, first, thanks for... Uh... I'm really looking forward to that OCCRP report. I feel like I suddenly understand that episode of Plebs uh, where they invent basketball. <laughs> um... All right, one of you got it. Um, that reference. My question. Uh, uh, my question is, um, and I came in about ten minutes late, so if the answer is uh, listen to listen to the archives, I understand. Uh, my question is: Have you read Freddie DeBoer's recent piece, basically arguing, well, it's amazing what the Ukrainian people are doing. Are they sure they want a military with a track record of the United States? Uh, to have any role or to come in and possibly fuck it up. Um, if you've read that, and if so, what you think of that? That, I sort of try to avoid Freddie DeBoer because I feel like I'm getting yelled at every time I read it. But I understand, Aww. you know, he's got good stuff. So it's just not my... Anyway. Okay, sorry, is the idea here the U.S. military being involved directly? I, I just want to make sure I understand. Well, this, this is my response. Yeah, I mean, I haven't read it, but if the argument is... U.S. military involvement is bad, then my response is the U.S. military is not involved. I mean, we're supplying them with weapons uh, and, um, you know, financial support and stuff, but there are no U.S. In fact, Biden was careful to pull everyone out because you don't want to have a tripwire where you have some U.S. Marines, you know, getting killed in a bombing and then everyone's clamoring for you to escalate. So everyone was pulled out of Ukraine. There were some trainers. So to the extent that the U.S. military posture is changing, they're putting in some more troops in NATO states in Eastern Europe um, as a signal that, you know, the U.S. will defend, will come to the defense of NATO members. But um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know Freddie's argument, so I can't really respond directly. But that's the extent of what I'm aware of that the U.S. military is doing here. So there's sometimes a more generic argument that's made that, you know, you don't want to send weapons into a war zone because it just results in more death and misery. And I can see... uh, the internal logic of that argument sort of, but I mean, it really, in my opinion, does not apply because we are arming Ukrainians with what they need to defend themselves. And if they think they, that it, it's made a big difference so far, and it's not just the United States, you know, it's at the forefront of the countries that have been supplying Ukraine with arms. It is again, the, uh, it is the Baltics, you know, because they have been living with a scary Russia looming next door for years. They've been taken over by Russia. They know what's at stake. And the UK has also given a lot. So it's um, also the case that it's not only the U, um, you know. Let, let's try to take the um, these three remaining calls if we can get through them. Uh, if folks just want to sort of 
get right to your question if possible. Greg, go for it. Greg. Hello. Can you hear me? Um, I was wondering what if you'd seen the lecture that came out on YouTube. I don't know how old it is. It's by Peter Zion. And it's just about, um, I, I don't remember what college he's lecturing, but he's talking about how, um, to me, it sort of like sounded like he was saying the blob looks at dealing with Russia in two ways. Um, and, and this is just his perspective, you know, either letting them demographically decline over a long period or drawing them into a conflict that will ultimately lead to the destruction of the state based on, you know, maybe popular uprising or economic issues. Do you think that uh, Ukraine is kind of a sacrificial lamb from the West standpoint in that larger goal of mm, staying world hegemon and keeping Russia uh, at bay? No, no, I do not. I do not think that. That is the kind of point of view that presupposes that the U.S. is the only actor with any agency on the world stage. You know, this situation is not created by the U.S. It was not created by the West. It was created um, by Russia. And so, you know, Russian demographic decline doesn't have anything to do with the West. And um, to the extent that Russian crony capitalism has been responsible for Russian demographic decline, then fair enough. And, you know, people sometimes blame sort of Western economists who came into Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union and blame them for kind of promoting policies that led to that. That's a whole other topic we probably don't have time to get into here. But, you know, Russia, Putin is an actor on the world stage. Ukraine is its own is its own sovereign state and its own people. And they have fought for the right to determine, you know, their destiny. And that is what they're doing. And that has brought them into conflict with Russia. So that's just um, not the West's um, initiative on this case. That's I think oh, yeah, don't go to don't go to tablet. You're going to have an aneurysm if, if you see the piece they ran on this. I will not. And just one quick response. I, I think that is a I, I definitely believe Russia has agency and definitely played a role in this, of course. But you, if you listen to realists like Nishimer and even George Kennan, he said that expanding NATO would ultimately lead to a more uh, aggressive and destructive Russia based on what his views were. And we continue to expand NATO. And he said that in 97. So I think it is worthwhile looking at it from the other perspective, despite Russia having agency. Fair, so, fair enough. That that's... that point of view exists. And I think, um, you know, I've made clear my disagreement, but it is, you know, it is legit is a legitimate point of view. So um, fair enough. Fair enough on that. Thank you. Thanks for the call, Greg. Uh, Vinny, second to last caller. Hey, I'm curious if you're familiar with Alexander Dugan's The Foundations of Geopolitics, and if so, how that, you know, what's going on today may or may not be related to the... I can't say I've read any of Dugan's work closely enough to really make a coherent um, argument. I would say that I think his influence is sometimes or often overstated, um, but I, I'll be honest, I'll just plead ignorance on this. I can't, um, can't comment. I'm an expert on Dugan, actually. So, uh, I'm just kidding. I haven't read him either. Uh, sorry, Vinny. Uh, Matteo. Hey, so I've had an interesting week. I've kind of had complete victory in many ways in that 
I've seen Putinism and Putin's apologists as a disease, and uh, I see the uh, the way that he's manipulated the GOP, especially and the Tories, especially and dolts like Bolsonaro is being very transparent. Now that's all totally exposed. That's the good news. The bad news is we're very close to World War III, <laughs> like really, really close. Uh, here's here's my thought for you guys, though. You just mentioned tablet, which of course uh, has a lot of people with opinions on this. Um, let's assume that we don't see nukes fly and that somehow this horrible situation in Kharkiv resolves, which is a big hope because uh, I think both Zelensky and Putin are kind of painted into a bad corner without much of an exit. Here's the thing to really worry about if you really want to worry about a World War III state, and that is that it was only a matter of minutes for uh, Peskov and Simonian and Putin to come back um, against the, the Bennett statement, the, the Israel statement of just kind of light kind of lukewarm support for Ukraine at all. And then minutes later, they take the two-year-old uh, leftovers out of the fridge in terms of the Syrian territorial beef on uh, Golan Heights and the obvious group of criminals behind uh, the exploitation of it in Gini, which is the, the lowest of low-hanging fruits for Assad to have used and for Putin to have used. They brought it out of the fridge. They brought it out of the fridge in a matter of minutes. Obviously, there's been so much noise the past few days no one probably really noticed it outside of people that watch like the Israel-Russia relationship. But that's huge. Um, that means that the uh, obviously Israel's political formula, Americans don't know this, but um, Israel's political formula is heavily based on socially conservative Russian immigrants uh, that may or may not be ethnically Jewish entirely or uh, partially. And that's a big part of uh, Israeli politics. Anyways, it sets up a huge, uh, really, really dangerous situation as well, if you guys want to talk about that at all. I have to say again, uh, I've not been following this really at all. So I think it sounds like you know a lot more about it than I do. So I will just leave it at. Um... Ilya, you're never going to be a pundit if you don't make shit up. Come on. Please, please tell me I will never be a pundit. I'd love to hear that. Uh, well, dude, thank you so much for taking these calls. Can we just. I just want to end with one um, sort of related question, which is I, you know, you came here at seven. You fled a very what I imagine was not a good situation for for Russian Jews. I mean, I, I have, as I've learned, gotten slightly less historically ignorant, gotten a little bit more sensitive about like Soviet nostalgia on some parts of the left, like just even just like the sickles. And I, I totally get what you're saying that Tucker Carlson is a bigger influence on the world than random leftist assholes. But like it it is a thing, and it has been a thing forever. I mean, fight fights about trying to get like actual communists out of lefty groups. I, what would you tell, say to people who like try to sort of soft pedal the enormity of what happened during the U S. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't, if, if they're convinced that the USSR was a force for good, I don't think anything that I can say would convince them in Ukraine, the hammer and sickle in many places is viewed like a swastika yeah. because it uh, represents, you know, a literal genocide of their people. The Soviet Union was a totalitarian state that did not manage to take care of its own people and died the death it deserved. And um, that's just mainstream, absolutely, basically uncontested history. Um, and I think it's a shame also because, you know, I'm not, much of a lefty myself, but there is very fertile ground for leftist activism on this issue. And if you just think about climate change is the one that immediately jumps to mind. You know, every solar panel we build is a blow against Russian imperialism because we become less dependent on Russian oil and we take away the ability of Russian oligarchs to earn money on the back of natural resources. I mean, if that, if there is any, that is such a straightforward, classic and easy argument for 
to make from a left perspective. And I wish more larger segments of the left were making those kind of arguments. And I mean, everything that leftists hate about the United States, patriarchy, capitalism, uh, I mean, militarism, I mean, you name it, anything, any criticism that a leftist could make of the United States, take it out times 50. That's what Russia is. You know, it's, yeah. it's just so much worse. And it's, imperialism in the classic sense they want to swallow you know solve the ukrainian question i mean if you are an anti-imperialist hate the u.s all you want you know we can have that separate debate if you want but don't start defending putin on those grounds it's just absolutely incoherent so um that stuff does piss me off and uh i just am grateful that those people generally are more influential on well, dude, thank you very much for taking all these questions and, and really sort of being in the hot seat. One more time, uh, where can people find your work uh, and the work you edit? Yeah, so that's um, Ich bin Ilya on Twitter. That's me. And my organization is OCCRP, uh, also on Twitter or OCCRP.org online. Please follow us and you will find uh, how much corruption there really is. And Not that much, you're saying. Exactly. Thank you so much, Leah. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I, I thought this was like a really good example of um, – I've been saying for a while wanting to have more guests on. I, I, I think this was an example of how that can work really well. It just I thought it was a great conversation. Your questions were great. Ilya knew his stuff. So thank you for listening. If you like what I'm doing with Single Mighty Conversations, all I would ask is you tell other people about it. Try to get more people on call in. Try to spread uh, the good word, as it were, and uh, you'll hear more from me soon. Thank you. And thanks for having me, Jesse. Come to I would love to do that. God, amazing. All right, thanks, man. I will soon. Bye.